I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 12 through 20 this morning as we simply continue walking through 1 Corinthians 15. And the title of the sermon, What If? What If? Guess I should get there myself, huh? like to pray, play a brief game of what if with you this morning. Have you ever done that before with your wife or with your family? I'm sure you have because it's kind of a human thing. We all like what if scenarios. I don't know why it is we like to ponder that which hasn't happened or that which could happen or, or what, what would have happened if, but, but we sure like to. And those of you who enjoy watching football in this room, what if scenarios are always going through your mind as you watch football, right? What if he'd have caught that? What if he wouldn't have fumbled? What if there would have just been another 10 seconds on the clock at the end of that game? What if, what if, what if? Even the announcers during the football games, they, they use what ifs all the time. Oh, if only. Oh, maybe if. And, and actually, a lot of times when I'm watching and I hear an announcer say, if only, or I wonder if, I say, well, just stick to what you know. Stick to what is, because the, the what ifs are kind of futile, right? You really don't need the what ifs, but we ask what ifs. We ask, what would this world be like if? What would your life and my life be like if electricity hadn't been discovered? What would things be like if I was taller? If I was shorter? If I wasn't balding? If I was smarter? If I had chosen to pursue this path? If I had chosen to pursue that if I'd have gone to a different college, if I had had a different circumstance. What ifs? What would the world be like if I had taken that job or moved to that state or married so-and-so instead of so-and-so? What if? Well, today Paul's going to play a game of what if with the Corinthians and he's going to do it based upon the scenario that they've presented. What if there was no resurrection from the dead. What if people don't rise from the dead? What if Christ didn't rise from the dead? See, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is speaking on the resurrection. And he founded that speaking in the gospel, right? The first six verses were the gospel. That Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures and He was seen of hundreds and hundreds of people and we know that He, he rose from the dead. That's the Gospel. It's an integral part of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And last week, remember, Paul began kind of... He got on a little bit of a side note. And he started talking about his own testimony of salvation. He's even seen the risen Lord. And he started saying, well, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. He says, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So he didn't see himself as anything special, but he saw the grace of God in his life that had brought him to where he was, and God chose to use him the way he chose to use him. And he says, that's just the grace of God. And then he said in, in, in verse um, 11, as, as we finished last week, well, whether it be they that preach the gospel unto you or I, what matters is you heard it and you received it. But as we step into verse 12 this week, there were those in the church of Corinth who were not sure that there was such a thing as the resurrection of the dead. Now, Paul does not give their theology what it, exactly it is that they did believe, but if there is no resurrection, then, of course, by extension, Jesus Christ could not have raised from the dead. It's quite possible we know that in Corinth, there was a very large contingency of Jews. We talked about that a little bit last week. Now, the Jews were typically loyal to one of two religious sects, right? They were either loyal to the Pharisees, who were in charge primarily, or they were loyal to the Sadducees. And we know from Scripture that one of the defining characteristics of the Sadducees is that they rejected the supernatural idea that there was a resurrection from the dead. And so it's possible that in Corinth, when Paul had gone to, to, to give the gospel, many received the gospel, but those Christians who had accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, but who had been Jews and, and, and kind of rooted in the Sadducee sect of Jews, perhaps we're beginning to question 
in accordance with what they had learned in the past, whether or not there even was resurrection from the dead. But this would be a problem, as Paul saw it, for those who are believers, if they question or cast doubt upon one such essential doctrine as the resurrection. And that is why Paul is going to play this game of what if today with the church of Corinth. What if Jesus had not risen from the dead? Let me ask you rhetorically. Think about that for a moment. What if Jesus had not risen from the dead? He died. He still shed his blood. He still heard it is finished or cried it is finished. He, he still, all that still happened, but he didn't rise from the dead. What would be different spiritually? Anything? Think about that for a few moments. Through this scenario, we can answer doubts. Whether our own doubts or whether it's doubts that others might bring up as, as to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, there, there, there are times, there are doctrines that seemingly on the, on the surface level don't matter unto salvation. But then when you flesh them out, turns out they're actually pretty important. I know there were several folks last week from this church who went to the Answers in Genesis presentation at Buffalo Covenant. Um, the Answers in Genesis is a, is a Bible-based creation science ministry, for those of you that aren't familiar, and, and their entire point, they focus in on Genesis 1-11. through 11. And they spend their time proving through science as well as through apologetics that Genesis 1-11 through 11 is literal history. It's not metaphorical. It's not to be just tossed around as myth. It is literal history. I love Answers in Genesis. I love their ministry. I appreciate what they do. My wife and I would have gone too, except where we're here. And um, we, we have almost, I mean, we have more materials of theirs than, than we know what to do with anyway. Nothing that they would say in a presentation would be new to us because we've got all their DVDs and books and such anyway. I, I, I really appreciate their ministry. And, and those of you who are looking for a good Bible-based creation apologetics, um, you can't do better than Answers in Genesis, to be quite honest, and the material that they put out. But what they do is they take the question of whether or not Genesis 1-11 through 11 is metaphorical and they prove how important it is to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is presented in Scripture as the last Adam. Well, what, what can it mean that he's the last Adam if there wasn't a first Adam, if it was metaphorical, right? Jesus presents those passages, speaking of Adam, speaking of of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he uses the Old Testament and he, he uses it as history. So if, if Jesus was using it as history and it wasn't history, well, then Jesus was lying. Well, that impugns his character. That means he's not able to bear our sins. And then, of course, if we can read the first 11 chapters of our Bible and say, well, that's not true, then why can't we read John 3 and say, well, that's not true? If the first part's not true, then can we trust any of it? And so, as we think about these doctrines, initially we might hear some of these things and say, well, it really doesn't matter. Right? I can, I can believe in millions of years and still believe that Jesus died on the cross for me and rose again and, and I can still be saved. I agree with you. You can. But there's an inconsistency in your theology that might make it difficult for others or yourself down the road. And that is what Paul is going to highlight today with the resurrection. Paul is going to tell these, whatever contingency it was of the church in Corinth that didn't believe in the resurrection. He's going to say, he's not calling them unbelievers, but what he is saying is you have an inconsistency between the gospel that you accepted and the theology that you're espousing. And I'm going to give you um, some thoughts on that as well as some warnings. We also have the privilege of learning by virtue of the, this warning and this teaching, what if, uh, the, the, the what if scenario, exactly how important the doctrine of the resurrection is to our lives as believers today. So, three points Paul's going to make. First, he's going to say, number one, if there is no resurrection, then Jesus Christ is not risen. Then he's going to say, number two, if Christ is not risen, then your faith is worthless. 
And then number three, if your faith is worthless, then your testimony of your faith is in fact deceit. And you have no hope. So we're going to get pretty heavy this morning. Stay with me, please. Let's look, if you would, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose not from the dead, how say some, of, some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. In verse 12, Paul asks a simple question. A question that is founded strongly upon the gospel that he's already preached. The question is, if the gospel demands that Christ be risen from the dead, how can any believer state that there is no resurrection from the dead. As Paul presented the gospel, a vital part of that presentation was the resurrection of the dead. Jesus' death paid for our sins. The blood of Jesus Christ is and was the propitiation for our sins. Jesus' life, however, it, it secures for us eternal life also. Payment for sins in this life makes little sense if death was not defeated. May I say that again? Payment for sins in this life makes little sense or is of little worth if death was not also defeated. So Paul asks, how is it that you can have such a disconnect between what we might call your practical theology, your physical theology, and your academic theology? You, you say one thing on an academic level, but what you're living in your Christian life is on another level. In your Christian life, the way you're living it, you depend upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ to get you to heaven. But in your theology, you are saying that there is no such thing as the resurrection from the dead. And by the way, this can happen, can't it, in our Christian lives? We can have false theology, but still be living within the blessings of the theology that we deny. And it's not uncommon as humans for us to have this disconnect, even outside of the theological world. We could spend a few moments to think about this together, the disconnect that many humans have between what they think and how they live. Our academic theology tells us that Jesus paid for all of our sins on the cross. But if we aren't careful, our practical theology compels us to live in guilt and fear as if our sins are still ours to bear, as if they're still on our shoulders, right? I, I can't tell you how many people I've counseled on this very issue. They come up and they, they tell me that they're saved and I get their testimony and they say, I know I'm a Christian. I believe on Jesus Christ to be saved. I know that He died on the cross, that He, he rose again. I have accepted that gift of salvation. I believe it with all my heart. I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm on my way to heaven, but I've got all this guilt I've got all of this guilt. And the question is, if you understand that Jesus Christ paid for your sin, if it's all under the cross, then why are you bearing it? Why are you still carrying it? Why are you holding it as a load on your shoulders when Jesus Christ has already borne it? We talked last week about one of the, the reasons why you might think God can't use you. And that would be your past the things I've done in my past, the way I've lived, the way I've acted. God can't use me. We're living in a disconnect if we think that way. If you're a believer and you think that way, you are thinking one thing, living another, recognizing that Jesus paid for your sin on the cross, but living under the guilt of that sin that has been paid for and that you've accepted salvation. We need not do that. We can release ourselves from that guilt because God has already divinely released us from that guilt. 
Our academic theology tells us that our salvation freed us from the power of sin, but our practical living convinces us that we can't get victory over certain sins. Now, in cases like these, we have it right on paper, you might say, but it's wrong as we reflect it in our lives. We have it right in our minds, but we're living it differently. We're living it wrong. In the case of the Corinthians, it was the exact opposite. They had it right in their lives. They'd accepted Christ and they they weren't afraid of hell. But academically, they were preaching that there was no resurrection. Some of the believers in Corinth lived out of a firm belief that they were saved. Their practical theology was correct. But they taught and asserted that the resurrection was not true. Their academic theology was incorrect. And this is common of the human condition. In fact, unbelievers do it every day. Unbelievers live in a world governed by moral absolutes, do we not? Certain things are just wrong. Certain things are wrong regardless. Murder is wrong. You might have a person that tries to tell you, well, in certain circumstances, murder isn't wrong, but, but if, if their family was to be murdered, they'd say it's wrong. If they were to be murdered, they, they wouldn't want to be murdered. Murder is wrong. People see that moral absolute but they're offended when those morals are, uh, on their behalf, they're, they're offended when those morals are broken. Someone steals their car. They say that was wrong. It's my property. It shouldn't have been stolen. Someone lies to them. They get upset because someone lied. But at the same time, many of these unbelievers state that there is no absolute moral standard. They're admitting that the standards that govern human behavior must go beyond simply culture in their minds as they fight against them not wanting to have their car stolen or them not wanting to be lied to. But then they justify their own sin by saying, well, that's your standards, not mine. That's your morals, not mine. So they live in a world where they need absolutes, moral absolutes, but they assert when, when their morality is being questioned that there are no absolutes. Even though the unbeliever's academic theology, we might say, says that they're not answerable to the God of the Bible, in practice they live within the realm of the moral standards that God has set up because they're written on their heart. This inconsistency happens among Christians as well. Christians who live right before God, but their stated theology is wrong. So, these folks in Corinth lived like they had secured eternal life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They live as though Jesus has died on the cross and raised again so that they can have eternal life, but they, in their teaching, said that there was no resurrection. And Paul is simply calling them out on this inconsistency. So he says in verse 13, But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. This is simple. If it is as these believers claimed, that no one can, has, or will ever rise from the dead, then Jesus Christ has not risen from the dead. Theology has consequences. And even if a certain point of bad theology does not seem to affect our personal relationship with the Lord, the outworking of the implications of this bad theology can have a tremendous impact upon others and upon their understanding of the Word of God and God in this world. In this case, if we do not believe that there is such thing as a resurrection from the dead, then we must, by extension, inherently not believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, which means we must inherently be rejecting the concept of eternal life altogether. But now our what if gets very interesting, even more interesting. Well, what if there is no resurrection from the dead? Then Christ is not risen. That's a pretty straightforward statement. But what happens if Christ is not risen? What if Christ is not risen? Verse 14. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. If Christ is not risen, then everything that you and I claim is empty. 
More so, if Christ is not risen, then everything that you place your faith in is empty. Have you ever had a moment in your life where the way you perceive the world changed? Where you were thinking one way and then you learned something or you saw things and and your perception of the world changed? Maybe you believed in Santa Claus. Way back when. Maybe you still believe in Santa Claus. I don't know. And you remember the day... Okay, I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not going to really offend anyone here. You remember the day where you found out Santa Claus isn't real. Right? You remember that day. I really hope I'm not, not causing any angst among young children in here. Your system of understanding upon which you base your actions has been torn out from under you and you were left to pick up the pieces of the way you saw the world. Now, this was at I don't know what age, 4, 6, 8, 12, 30. And so maybe it wasn't all that big of a deal at the time. I mean, it was at the time, but not so much. Small potatoes compared to other things in your life now. But this changed the way you acted because for years you thought, I need to be good or else I'm going to get coal for Christmas. And now you realize that's not the case. Now, parents, as a side note, I would advocate never lying to your children. Don't tell them Santa Claus is real. If you did, okay, you did. But may I advocate not lying to your children, forming the habits of, of your children knowing that if mom and dad said it, it's truthful. Because it's going to help them trust you more later when you get to bigger issues in their teenage years and they need to know that mom and dad have never purposefully deceived me. Mom and Dad tell me these things about God and Jesus Christ and, and, well, they also told me these things about Santa and the Easter Bunny. So if they told me Santa and the Easter Bunny was real and now he's not, then what about what they've taught me about Jesus Christ for all these years? They lied to me about Santa and the Easter Bunny. Are they lying to me about Jesus Christ? So may I encourage you not to do that, but that's a side note. Your life... things changed. Your understanding changed when you realized that there was no Santa Claus, when you realized there was no Tooth Fairy, when you realized there was no Easter Bunny. Things changed. I remember when I realized that, uh, well, well, when my political eyes opened and I realized that the Republican and Democrat dual system of American politics was a false paradigm that was meant to give the illusion of a choice when really it's solidifying Americans in a decision of the lesser of two evils that keeps things going in a wrong direction at all points because there's really no choice but one evil or the other evil and they just name themselves different and they have a different color. I remember that. That changed my life. It completely changed the way I I, I saw the world, I saw this country, I saw politics, everything. Now imagine if Jesus had not risen from the dead. That's a paradigm shift. Everything that I hold dear, not just in this life, but also the next, collapses underneath the weight of such a claim. With one theological claim, my entire life goes from standing upon the rock of my salvation, upon which I'm secure and I know, to I'm standing in the, in the quicksand of, of doubt and fear. If Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead, my spiritual world shatters as does yours. All that I claim is vapor. All that I believe is smoke. All of your suffering for Christ, it's worthless. All of your sacrifices for righteousness, absolutely unnecessary. All of your careful obedience becomes just a bunch of rules. What if there is no resurrection from the dead? Then Jesus is still in the grave. What if Jesus is still in the grave? Then all that you and I claim to hold on to in this life has no meaning. This is big. Verse 15. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. If Jesus is not risen, not only does our entire faith system fall underneath the weight, but if Jesus is not risen, then you and I are false prophets. We're deceivers. We're the very worst kind of person. 
We are those that testify that Jesus is alive when he is dead if there is no resurrection. We devote our time and our effort to pawning some cheap myth that has no bearing on history or reality if it is in fact true that there is no resurrection from the dead. We are just a bunch of snake oil salesmen if Jesus is not risen from the dead, if there is no resurrection from the dead. Because our faith is nothing more than worthless. And we are false witnesses. Verses 16 and 17, For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. And here is the long and short of the issue. If there is no resurrection so that Jesus is not raised, then all that you believe is empty and worthless. And if all that you and I believe is empty and worthless, then you have no salvation. You've been saved from nothing. This salvation which we preach is nothing more than a myth. This redemption through, uh, from death and through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ is little more than a story for the purpose of societal conformity or behavior modification if Jesus did not raise. Is it really that big of a deal, Pastor? Are you blowing this out of proportion a little bit? I mean, it's just one, one little portion of theology. See, but theology has consequences. One little portion of our theology can mean the difference between your children sticking with it or seeing the inconsistencies and saying, I'm out of here. It can mean the difference between your friend saying, yeah, they say this, but look how they live. Or your friend saying, yes, it's consistent, and yes, it is right. If Jesus is not alive today, you and I have no hope of salvation and resurrection, no hope of heaven, no hope of a true relationship with God. And then look at verse 18. Not only that, but then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. They're destroyed. They're done. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then they have nothing to look forward to. Then there is no resurrection. Then there is no comfort. If the resurrection is false and Jesus is not raised, not only are you on your way to destruction, you are on your way to oblivion, to nothingness, but so are all those that have gone before you. All those that you comfort yourselves in knowing that they're gone, but you'll see them again. Those who are sick among you and you say, yes, I don't want them to be sick, I pray for their healing, but if the Lord were to take them, I know that I'll see them again. There's no comfort there. If the dead rise not... Then verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Do you know that? If your faith begins and ends with this life, then this is a miserable way to live. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're hopeless and we're miserable. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we stare into the empty chasm of a meaningless existence. We are here today, we are gone tomorrow, able only to have a fleeting mark on a crumbling world. We wander in darkness, creating hollow relationships, chasing ethereal dreams with nothing to show for it all in the end but wasted effort and futile ambitions. The word is truly hopeless. It's what the lost feel every day. Eagerly scratching the veneer of this world, looking for something meaningful underneath its shiny exterior and never finding it. It's why so many turn to drugs and alcohol. Why so many take their lives before God takes it for them. It's why the rich pour money into good causes. It's why the poor incessantly dream of being rich. It's why people must have the latest and greatest in the tech world and in the fashion world and in the automotive world, in the fill-in-the-blank. We look at a world of people who are devoid of purpose other than that which is temporary and that which is fleeting. And we see hopelessness. We see little blips of comfort every time they get something new only for them to fall back into the same despair in which they left. We see them painfully searching for meaning in a world that really has none. 
outside of what we know. But if Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead, then it's worse for us than it is even for them. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, then we're not simply like the world, we are far more miserable than the world. We spend our days denying earthly ambition and prestige. We love our enemies. We do good to them that hate us. We pray for those who would despitefully use us. We give to those who cannot repay. We help those who cannot help us. We deny our flesh even when there's no one to see whether or not we are denying our flesh. We clothe ourselves in humility which makes us a target for the proud. We envelop ourselves in a selfless love which makes us the scorn of the selfish world in which we live. And if Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead, if we have no hope of eternal life, then we are of all men most miserable. We do all of this because the meaning of our lives is completely dependent upon the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you realize what this means? It means if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, not only are you in the same hopeless boat as the rest of the world, but you're denying yourself the only joy that the world has to offer, which is selfishness, self-gratification. The thing that we deny ourselves because we are commanded to by a living God. Not a philosopher in the grave. Not a good man who had a lot of good ideas, but a living God. You are denying yourself the selfishness and pride and sinful pleasures that are the only source of human material happiness if indeed Jesus Christ never rose from the dead. But, verse 20 says, but what? But, now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. See, these are all just, it, it was just a big game of what if, see, because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He does live. We serve a risen Savior. We serve one who has conquered death. We serve one who is greater than death and hell. We serve one who is victorious. And we serve Him because He was victorious. That's what makes Him worth serving. Jesus is risen from the dead. We spend our days denying earthly ambition and prestige because Jesus denied earthly ambition and prestige. And when we stand face to face with Him... He will reward us for it. We love our enemies because Jesus loved His enemies and we love our risen Lord. We do good to those that hate us because Jesus did and He is our resurrected Savior. We pray for them who despitefully use us because Jesus did and one day we will be like Him. We give to those who cannot repay because Jesus did and because He lives, we will live also, we help those who cannot help us because Jesus did, and His kindness gave unto us eternal life. We deny our flesh even when none are there to see us because Jesus did, and because He is alive. We clothe ourselves in humility, which makes us a target for the proud, but we don't live to please the proud. We live to please Jesus Christ, who died for us and rose from the grave. We envelop ourselves in selfless love, which makes us a, the scorn of the selfish world in which we live, but we gladly bear this shame. We gladly bear this contempt because Jesus bore it first. And when He sees it in us, He will be well pleased. This is why we live. Brothers and sisters, we are not hopeless because Jesus lives. We are not miserable because we know that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory that is waiting us in eternal life. We are not liars. We speak the truth in love to a world that is lost in hopelessness and sin. And we do await the day when we will see our loved ones again for we have the privilege of passing into the same eternal life that they have already passed into. And this, brothers and sisters in Christ, is why the resurrection is important. 
Now next week, now that we know why it's important, we'll consider exactly what the resurrection is and the implications of it. But we need to apply these vital truths before we're finished this morning. Application number one. It's a question. Do you have the eternal joy and hope found in Jesus Christ? Perhaps as I've said these words this morning, you recognize that you are in fact one of those who has no hope. You have never placed your faith and your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. You have never accepted the free gift of salvation and so you are just like all the rest who are walking through this world seeking meaning from material things, not knowing where you're going to go when you die, not having the hope of knowing that your sins are forgiven and you have a home in heaven. Perhaps you, like most of the men and women on this planet, are living for now and putting off eternity until it's too late. Maybe you've never even thought about eternity before. You thought this was all that was and you just never considered it. Perhaps you have felt the emptiness that this life brings. The hopelessness of knowing that you are just a very, very small ripple in a very, very, very large ocean. That you're just one tiny little person in a very large universe, in a blip of a matter of a few years, in a timeline that is extensive. And you feel insignificant because you recognize that as far as this life goes, there's just not a whole lot to it. For you, I have good news. Because life has meaning and purpose when that life is given to Jesus Christ. We live in a world dead in sin. And those who are not in Christ, those who have never accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, are a part of that world dead in sin. But Jesus, the Bible says, who is God, came to earth, lived a sinless life, a life perfect before God and man, but was still killed, rejected, died a sinner's death to pay for your sin. To pay for the sins you would commit. Not just today's sins, but yesterday's sins and tomorrow's sins as well. But Jesus didn't stay dead. That's what we've been speaking of today. The Bible tells us three days later, He rose again from the grave. And when He rose again from the grave, whereas His death paid for our sins, His life, His resurrection, defeated sin and death. So that those who place their faith and their trust in the name of Jesus Christ to be saved not only have that forgiveness of sins, but are also given something even more glorious, which is eternal life. Spiritually, alive forever, physically, going to a place called heaven. And the hope that we have is found in the reality that those who have been saved from their sins don't live any longer for themselves, but rather we live to serve and to please the one who has redeemed us from eternal death. Now, if you've never placed your faith and your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, in his death and his resurrection from the grave, may I invite you to do that today? You don't have to do anything special or go through a particular process. The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There, in your seat, silently, you can tell God that you accept His free gift of salvation. You can ask Him to save you, and He will, for He's promised He would. If you will but believe on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. Now, if you have made that decision, or if you need more information, would you come see me after the service? I can open a Bible. I can show you either the decision you've made, or I can give you more information to make that decision. Or would you see someone else in the church? Would you not rest until you know, you have confidence that you have accepted the gift of salvation by believing on the name of Jesus Christ. I now turn my attention toward we in the room who are believers. 
The second point I'd like us to make an application is this. We aren't about religion or beliefs. That's not what we do here. We don't do religion. We don't do what we believe. We are about the truth. What, what we do here is about truth. As Paul presents it, the defining factor between a born-again Christian and other religious people is that we preach the truth. What we do every day, reading the Bible perhaps, praying, maybe family devotions, maybe whatever you do, when we come together Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday night, and we meet here at church, it's not about religion. It's not even simply about what we believe. When you tell your neighbor about Jesus, when you give your server a tract at the restaurant, when you knock on a door and give the gospel, you aren't simply telling people what you believe. There are millions of people in this world who have made it their goal to get you to believe what they believe. Politicians raise millions of dollars to get you to believe what they believe. Religions all over the world send people all over the world, spend billions of dollars, hand out buckets of literature to get you to believe what they believe. We're not simply here trying to convince each other to believe what, we, what each other believes. False religions are in Buffalo, Minnesota every week telling people what they believe and seeking to get them to believe it as well. But we don't go into this world trying to convince people what we believe. We go into this world telling people what is true. True about the world and about the world to come and their relationship between this world and the world that is to come. See, we aren't selling something. We aren't in a competition with other religions and denominations to see who can put together the most compelling product or who can bring the most people into their, their side of the fence. That's not what we do here. Error is error no matter how pretty you dress it up. And we, that being all who believe what the Bible says, not just Baptists or Legacy Baptist Church or, or anything of the sort or fundamentalists, all who believe that the Bible is true and have accepted it as true, we have the exclusive truth about what the world is and what is going to happen to it. And we have this truth directly from the mouth of God. This is why we aren't ashamed. If I was just selling me, if I had to go up to people and try to convince them that I'm a compelling product or that my church is a compelling product through my music or through my charismatic personality or... or through my clothing or, or, or whatever, then, yeah, there'd be a lot of nervousness. I mean, this suit was my grandfather's, right? This is not a compelling product that you see before you. It doesn't even have belt buckles. It's the old school, right? This is not a compelling product you see. A, a balding 70s, 60s, 50s, whatever suit man is not a compelling product. But that's okay because I don't need to be a compelling product because I'm not selling me. I'm not trying to sell you on these products or on one of these old things that nobody uses anymore. I'm not trying to sell you on this stuff. We're not here to sell a product. We're not here to manipulate people to believe what we believe. And we're certainly not here to make money. We're here to tell the truth. That's why we're here. Because this is not just what we believe. This is what is real. This is reality. Everything else is the veneer. Everything else is the dream. One day you and I are going to wake up from this dream and we are going to be in reality. That is eternity. And that will be real. This here, this is just a step. This is, this is a blink. This is a, a deep breath. A moment of eternity. And God is asking us to see through the lights and to see through the shine and to see through what the world says is important and to see through all of that. And God is asking us to, to live and to see what is real because He's told us. This is why we aren't afraid to tell others about Christ because truth is truth. And if people don't know, then they can't benefit from it. 
I'm not afraid to tell people the truth. We're not afraid to tell people the truth. Person has a piece of toilet paper on their shoe and they're walking around with it. You're just going to be like, oh, well, I don't want to offend them, so I'm just going to... Or do you go up and you step on it and say, hey, I just want to let you know you had a piece of toilet paper hanging on your shoe. Didn't want you to be embarrassed. Didn't want you to walk around with that all day. Or a little shaving cream on the ear, right? That happens to me more often than not. My wife has to come up and get that. She, she, didn't, she didn't want me to be walking around all day with some shaving cream hanging off my ear. How nice of her to tell me the truth that I had some shaving cream on my ear and I needed to, to, to wipe it off. We're, we're not doing people any favors if we conceal the truth. Nor are we ashamed to tell someone the truth because it's the truth. I'm just telling you the truth. Well, we're, we're not here peddling beliefs folks. Nor are we here peddling religion. We are here proclaiming the truth. And that's what we go out to do every week. If I'm the only one here every week, or excuse me, if if I'm only up here every week to make you feel good about yourselves, or to modify your behavior, just to get you to be a better citizen, to get you to be a better kid, your parents need all the help they can get, whatever it is, if I'm simply up here to modify your behavior or to get money out of you, then I am the most worthless man in the most worthless of professions. And by the way, many people think that of pastors, that we are a useless and worthless profession because we're just in the behavior modification and make money off of other people's hard work business. But if it is my responsibility to deliver you the truth in a clear and coherent way, so that you then can take the truth, live it in your lives, and deliver it to others, then I am in, in fact, the most essential of professions. And when all we who who are believers, as we fight this battle, we recognize that the battle we're fighting now will echo into all of eternity. So the question is, are you proclaiming? the truth? Are you living the truth? Are you bold for the truth? Do you have confidence in the truth? Are you actually living this as if it's truth or do you see it just as your belief, your religion? Is this simply your brand of any other brand that's out there or is this truth to you? Because it's truth. It's reality regardless of whether you choose to believe it or not. These things are not a game. This is, this is life and death. This is heaven and hell. This is reality. Third and finally, your theology has consequences upon you and upon others. Remember that. Your theology has consequences upon you and it has consequences upon others. So don't allow little pieces of theology to fall by the wayside and just say, ah, oh, we don't have to worry about that one. The Corinthian church was a group of believers who knew they were saved had some right things, but had some things wrong as well. With each errant element of theology, they not only lived a life that was out of harmony with the Word of God, but they taught and influenced others to do the same. There are many deviant theologies out there that are taught by men who are clearly saved and even have a good testimony of believing the Bible. Why is it that they have gone into an area of inconsistency in their theology? With the Scriptures, that, that's more difficult to understand. But when we see people with theology that we recognize to be wrong, we should not take it lightly. The temptation is to say, well, they're good Christians, so maybe that point of preaching doesn't really matter. Maybe this is an area that we don't really need to touch on. Or maybe there's just two ways of looking at things. And I encourage you not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, not to say that they're just a terrible person because they're wrong on their particular area of theology. But theology does matter. May I give you an example, a couple examples? Two things that the church is is readily ignoring today and has been for the last 30 years is women preachers and divorce in the church. They're issues that have clashed with culture, feminism particularly, and therefore have been ignored. Lots of people will still say, yeah, they're in the Bible that, that divorce is wrong. It's in the Bible that, that women should not preach and teach. But, and they'll give their excuses. Okay, well, they can still be good Christians and believe these things. 
I'm not saying they're not good Christians. I'm not saying they don't know God, that they don't have a good relationship with Him, that they're not good at evangelizing, that they haven't brought people to Christ, those sorts of things. But there are consequences of wrong theology upon the generations. See, because the idea that divorce, we can just ignore that issue, and women preaching, we can just ignore that issue, has now come full circle to sodomy, we can ignore that issue. Because the children saw their parents ignore biblical truth, and they say, if our parents can ignore biblical truth, then why can't we? Well, the, the problem of the day was divorce. Mm, you know, okay, divorce. And at least they're remarrying the opposite gender, right? Or the problem of the day is women preachers. Well, I mean, there are a lot of good women teachers out there. So, eh, but, but see, then the next generation says, we ignored this, we ignored this. Now the issue of the day is sodomy. Well, let's just do what the church has been doing for the last 40 years and ignore it. Accept it. Bring it in. Theology has consequences. What we allow to change a little bit today in our children or grandchildren might be completely different. Might be completely gone. Because theology has consequences. What might simply be a different spin on doctrine in this generation can become complete heresy in the next generation. It is our responsibility to be careful, to be circumspect, to ensure that our doctrine is sound. Yet, in our, in our practical outworking, we also need to make it sound. We need to live it, but we also need to preach it properly. Sound doctrine is essential to sound faith. Because if our theological consistency begins to falter, there is no question that the practical outworking of our theology will falter as well eventually if not in your generation, then certainly in the generations to come. This is why in fundamentalist circles we preach what is called separation. That if a group of believers has erred from the truth and refuses to correct itself upon being called out by God's Word, we come out from them. We preserve truth so that even if we know this group over here is still preaching the Gospel, we preserve truth in its most pure form that we can because we know that in the next generation and the next generation and the next generation, if we're not preserving truth, then that truth will be gone. This is why we believe what we believe. And so it is our privilege and it is our duty to be in a consistent mode of learning and self-correction to guard ourselves against the dangers that fell upon the Corinthian church of allowing important doctrine to be pushed aside in favor of false ideas and inconsistent theology. Do you have the eternal joy and hope found in Jesus Christ? I hope you do. If you haven't, would you, do, would you make that decision today? Do you realize that we're here about truth? We're not here about what we believe or simply religion? And then have you thought about the consequences of your theology. I guarantee you that the consequences we want are the consequences that come by pure theology. Right and accurate doctrine. And if we're building that up in our lives, well, that has consequences too. And we're going to like the consequences that we see when we, when we teach and preach and live sound doctrine. Let's pray together.